I'd like to thank Jacqueline, I'd like to thank Offer and SROG for bringing together the new researchers today. I think really as a new researcher myself, I was very pleased to be appointed one of the um, SRHE New Researchers LinkedIn Champions and do tweet along with me because I think one of the things that has gone unsaid today is the importance that some of those um, online and new spaces that perhaps more traditional academics and traditional policy influence, influences don't occupy uh, can be really important to, to early career researchers, especially in, in developing that influence. Um, I feel a little bit like a rebel also. I think, I think Neil talked about it earlier. I, I do my research part-time and I established my um, career in the student support services in the higher education sector and I currently work for the higher education um, access track but I'm presenting today on my PhD and um, some of my more qualitative research and I think one of the things is I find myself asking questions which are very reflexive, very deep, very hard thinking and some of the things I'm going to say today are possibly going to be a little bit uncomfortable at times and bring a sort of like where's that come from and it's, it's bear with me because it's been just as uncomfortable for me and I think one of the questions that my research has led to which I'm focusing on a particular aspect of this is to ask the question on a micro level, we're not talking about these higher sort of strategic policy elites and legislation, but on a micro level, why do universities create policies? And particularly policies connected to widening participation and supporting diversity. And how are they brought to life? Are the policies that we see in higher education being designed in terms of a risk assessment of human behaviour? Um, trying to minimise the potential damage or allocate responsibility and understand where that is? Or are policies being brought to life and created and crafted as a way of empowering social change and diversity and, and really bringing those, those things to the front? And some of these questions are questions which talk about the difference between you know, policy aims and policy reality. And I think this has been really important and was some of the questions that I came up in when I, when I was working particularly with students who care for children in previous roles. And to see that actually some of the, some of the policy uh, narratives around widening participation make these students invisible. Um, while we do know that offer, for example, talk about carers in the broader sense in access statements and things like that, we don't actually know at the minute how many student parents there are in, in the UK or in England higher education. We know anecdotally from research that looks at um, expenditure and spends that student parents are a particularly significant group of um, university students. But actually, a lot of university um, structures and organisations can frame students in a way that, and particularly student parents, as, as outsiders and can create these environments in some of the existing research that sometimes institutional inequalities appear as their own personal failures. But to me, I, I particularly focus on these, this group because they are a golden bullet to widening participation in a way, both in terms of the potential widening participation of the parent and the social change and social mobility that might come about by their experience of going into higher education, but also the example that that sets with, the with their children as well. And that's seen in some of the existing research. But it's led me to ask questions when I think about why policies exist, is to where they exist. And actually there is an existing pathway of power and some of the things that I talk about in some of my other research is about care and, and investing policies. And actually 
power and influence of being on the ground, being responsible for activating policies and bringing them to life are very important in these students' experiences. The discretion that we have when we've written a large-scale policy like a student parent policy, and we're actually there bringing it to life and shaping the way that these students' journeys um, are done. And I, I am presenting this to say that the way I think about policy is very much that it is a lived experience than a particular document or a text. Um, looking at Bohr, looking at Lightfoot, who talk about policy ad hocery and how actually sometimes it's, it's having the confidence to meander and, and exercise discretion and actually realising that those people on the ground, as Lipsy talks about, are de facto policy makers. They, they have discretion, the management are highly dependent on what they do and sometimes we can get caught up when we have a particular written text or document in that how do we, how do we make something happen. And I think this is particularly key. I talk here about some of the student service industry and how that has grown, which is very much in my career background, and how some of the things like the effective nature of student life, the effective constructs, um, can be actually um, can be subversive to some of the policy narratives that we think about and some of some of the ways that policy is constructed, and very much the experiences of these students generated on on what people talk about as investing personal values, which was something that I felt happened. And I bring this to light because it's something that anecdotally I was aware of, and through this research I was triangulating in my um, own research. I'm not going to talk too much about my particular theoretical framing, because I think that was a point that um, Nick talked about, but actually it was quite nice to hear from Neil that um, I'm looking specifically at Nancy Fraser and to know that she's not French and she's not dead was particularly, <laughs> I, feel, I feel like when I go into my Viber I'm making an original contribution now. Um, but to give it in a nutshell, Fraser's um, theories of recognition look at uh, what's called perceptive dualism, which instead of talking about in very unilateral ways how cultural recognition, cultural practices to resolve some of these inequalities will lead to greater redistribution. So by having more people in a particular area, they will therefore feel the economic benefits, so by having more student parents. She actually redresses and talks about looking very reflexively at the individual practices and unpicking some of these issues to explore whether a more complex set of solutions need requiring and looking at the ways that redistribution and recognition interact and I think there's a way in which for some to some extent some of the policies we've seen in higher education talking about some of the bursaries work that's seen there's a very direct cause and effect relationship and I think what I'm trying to highlight here through these theories is that this this theoretical approach occupies some of those grey areas that Nick mentioned earlier where academics and policymakers are living in that space where there isn't an exact solution. It's not policy making on the back of a fag packet, but it's not necessarily purely quants-driven either. And I think when we work in widening participation, that's, that's one of the spaces where we really have to be aware that we're interacting with. So my research specifically, and my PhD is called Care in Higher Education, recognising uh, students who care for <coughs> children. I took two academic years and I worked with 16 students and six members of staff in a traditional uh, research-intensive university in the north of England. I'm not seeking here to make any claims about the experiences of these students broadly or nationally, but just to say that if their experiences 
and some of the experiences I'm going to share with you shortly are here in this environment. It's, it's reasonable to assume that similar stories are also present in other universities. And actually, the great diversity of experience is something that we perhaps need to think about when we're crafting policy. And, and the ways in which um, that is so important in terms of developing those nuanced understandings. So I conducted an institutional ethnography, and the aim of this institutional ethnography is it's an approach um, developed by uh, someone called Dorothy Smith, who is more famous for her work, Everyday Life is Problematic, and, and mapping uh, the way in which um, particular people go about their day and nightlife and experience barriers and problems in that. Um, the approach is based on adopting a particular standpoint and mapping their work, their day and night lives, and looking at how um, texts are activated, which is the focus of what I'm about to share, and how that relates to how power relations are shared through a particular institutional setting and construct, and highlighting some of these disconnects between where policy aims and policy reality and that ad hocery of policy comes to life. And I think it's really important to remember, and one of the things that I did see in the data that I collected from these students was the ways in which text and policy are read very selectively. And I'm going to share with you three different stories which show three different ways in which texts were actually brought to life and read and the purposes that they were um, used for and how actually, while we might believe that policy was formed in committee and actually that the power resides in the approval of that particular policy and the way it was brought to life, actually it was very much on the micro level. It was very much how it was brought to life in those experiences. So while I, I'm not analysing in my data the particular policy, I've shared a couple of extracts here from the student-parent policy that this institution has. And this isn't to criticise this institution. Having a student-parent policy is actually quite an impressive thing. It's a step in the right direction. It's something which is absent from many um, of the institutions and many of the support structures. Um, but actually, in that policy, and when I read it with one of my participants, um, Elaine, who I'm going to come on to first, we noticed the ways in which there were a number of actual contradictions and a number of vagaries which, while trying to bring this policy to life and develop some very positive um, terminology, avoiding uh, less favourable treatment, taking a flexible approach, at the same time there were some perhaps verbal fig leaves which allowed universities to maybe interpret that policy how they wanted, such as compromise academic standards and academic freedom, which we can see as quite um, open to interpretation terminology, certainly if you put that in front of a programme manager, as I'll see in some of the examples, but also the way that some quite natural processes that you would expect, such as breastfeeding, um, get presented as we're trying to take a flexible approach on the one hand, we're trying to be supportive, but on the other hand, Maybe we need to conduct risk assessments before you're allowed to do something like that, which seems seems a perverse way. We are very equal, we are very inclusive, but actually it's very natural bodily function that you're going to have to do. We're, we're, we're not sure that you should do that, um, and, and if you do, we're, we're, we're going to ask you to do a risk assessment for it as well. Um, and I think Elaine was the person who actually... That's not moved on. Yes. So Elaine was my first student I'm going to share with you of, of three. And Elaine um, had a lot of social capital herself. She was a student parent, but actually in terms of winding participation, being a student parent was perhaps 
one of the only things that would have made her stand out. She'd done two degrees before, she was a PhD student, she was very, perhaps not savvy to this particular institution's way of working because she'd been at previous universities, but actually the way in which she retained on her course and the way in which she got things um, done was by utilising some of that social capital, knowing that there was a policy or that there should be a policy, and going into that, go, looking, looking for that policy and going, I am a student parent, what, what do I need? is a question which perhaps most widening participation students might not openly ask if they didn't have the social capital that Elaine had behind her. Um, but also Elaine became aware when she read the document and had the skills to dissect it that it was a bit of a document for university staff. It was very much about framing and protecting the staff from the way that she interpreted it. And actually if you look at the quote at the bottom, Elaine started to play games with the policy because she knew that the policy wasn't designed for her, she knew that it wasn't actually um, meant to be work necessarily supporting her once she started to read it and apply it. And actually she sort of had experience of the people that had written these policies and were meant to be implementing them and could tell me that, for example, she knew that one supervisor in that department had, had said things like, oh no, not another student parent, when they'd actually taken this policy to them and tried to, and tried to bring it to life. Um, and actually the spirit and the way this policy was activated was very much, she knew that she could get part-time funding for her PhD, but she knew that she could only do this if she went about it in a roundabout way and actually got treated as a mitigating circumstance rather than being open and honest about her uh, student parent status. Um, and so the quote at the bottom talks about the actually considering all the informed decision making um, that we talked about and all the um, flexibility, she had to play games and she wasn't given clear images when, when the departments uh, came back to her and was left in a great sense of doubt, which I'm <laughs> confident Elaine had the social capital to navigate herself, but actually that policy wasn't doing what perhaps some of those aims meant to be. It wasn't supporting informed decision making. It wasn't being brought to life by the staff on the ground in that way. And that's not to criticise them, but it is to think about when that policy was developed, how much buy-in in those teams and institutions, how much work went in, or was this policy just brought to life by a committee? And Michaela is the, is the next student I talk about, and she again, activated the policies in the way that she believed. She perhaps didn't have as much social capital as Elaine. Um, and the staff on the ground didn't support her in terms of the flexibility. They'd actually written separate policies that paraphrased these policies to show how committed they were to the policies. Um, but at the same time, when looking at placements and looking at where um, she, she could do the sort of work-based learning component of her degree, um, the member of staff involved just hadn't brought any of that to life. And when Elaine, uh, when Michaela questioned that, um, was very much responded to in a way that actually, you're the only person on the course that wanted that, and it's been done already, and it and it's sort of pressurising, and it got to the point in the end where, when she raises this with her program leader, when she raises it with the head of school, 
even though there's this policy here to protect her, and she had talked previously about how knowing that was there to back her up had made her feel better about choosing this course and coming to this university, she's being asked to apologise and being taught ways to apologise. And I think, while it's not captured in this quote, one of the saddest things about that particular interview was actually <coughs> Michaela felt that she'd been taught a very valuable lesson about how to move forward in that particular sector. She'd really internalised some of these messages that had happened through the process of bringing this policy to life. And actually, she, she realised that the best way to move forward would be to, to bring um, to life, to go forward as she did, uh, and try to avoid rocking the boat wherever possible. And here, again, in a very different way, this policy was activated actually actively to try and control the student in this particular section. And Erica was a particularly tragic story in my research. She had taken this policy, she'd been to a previous university, she thought it was there to support them. Um, and in the end, we got to the point where the way it was being activated was actually used to set out how the university would support them. And to be in a position where um, you're asking a parent for maybe a medical note to prove that their child, their four-year-old child was ill and needed picking up from school is actually quite challenging and it, I think it says to some extent that some work needs to do, be done around the communities of practice that emanate around how policy is brought to life and maybe that needs to be thought about um, in the guidance. And in the end, as you'll see towards the bottom, this had some very tragic consequences. It was an ongoing story, and I can tell you that Erica was all right in the end. She went forward and she did her degree. But these are some of the experiences that some students, and I'm not saying that they are reflective of the experience of all student parents in all institutions, but when the policy communities and how policy is implemented is not really always considered, or we don't take the time to look at those cultures that emanate around those policies, um, that can be very problematic. Um, and I think this is, is really evident in, in the examples from these two members of staff, where in that institution, when looking at staff, we've got a real contrast between the really supportive uh, tutor who talks about how he just makes the policy work for the students, he brings it to life with them, he takes pride in the fact that he's always returned his students and he's made those mitigation claims and he's made things happen. And at the other end, staff who have that experience of being very committed to the idea and committed to the principles, but the actual reality of, of what's being expected of them from their institution and all the pressures that they're having to navigate, um, the status quo makes a lot more sense. And, and completely alien to this quote at the top, um, that the whole system just isn't going to change. And actually, I think if that member of staff had felt empowered, if they'd felt able and supported by the wider institution and some of those communities of practice that came together, um, they would be able to evoke some change if they'd felt that they'd had the confidence to pursue things like those Oxford Brooks models. That was from a senior programme manager. It was not by a junior lecturer or, or a, a new member of staff who was trying to find their way and fit in. And I suppose, in conclusion, what I would like to say about how this policy has been activated in some of the patterns is that there can often be a disconnect if we don't give space to thinking about policy and how it's brought to life and how it's activated. 
And I wouldn't like to chastise this institution because they did make excellent steps in terms of providing the bedwork and some of the WP staff talked about combating some of these issues. But maybe we need to support in policy development and agenda setting, both at a macro and a micro level, a greater appreciation of reflexivity, of nuance, of not wanting to force students down particular homogenous pathways and in the spirit and, and support of fairness and actually coming up with situations similar to um, Erica's where, where there's clearly a difference going on there and it needs a bit more discretion. It needs care and empathy that staff feel empowered enough to do that. Thank you.